My children love having guests over, whether it's friends or family, especially family. They'll run you through a series of questions and inquisitions and fun games, but no question is as important to them as the first one that they tend to ask you as soon as you walk in the door. Did you bring us presents? We come on this day where we celebrate some folks many, many moons ago brought presents to the Christ child. This epiphany, which means manifestation, commemorating the light of God gifted to us, which shined before those reciprocal gifts from the Magi. And so we sing our favorite epiphany hymn, We Will at the End of Church, the one, only one that most of us know if we're honest, We Three Kings of Orient Are. Gold we bring to crown him again. So we're reminded that Jesus is supposed to be a, a, a king. We're reminded of him as ruler. Frankincense to offer have I. Incense for a deity nigh. Okay, this child is supposed to be a god to us as well. Or, according to some new research at Cardiff University in Wales, they brought this gift to help him prevent arthritis. I think a little ahead of his time, but, you know... They're thinking ahead about this child. And then finally, myrrh. Its bitter perfume breathes of life of gathering gloom. The most morbid of the gifts. Here you are, baby Jesus. Here is a sign of your impending doom. But the gifts are not about the baby. Babies don't care what gifts they're given outside of love. These gifts are the gospel writer, Matthew's way of writing to us and reminding us about what this baby's revelation should mean to us and his identity as king, God, and ruler over death. The Magi recognized this child's identity and the gift it could be to their souls if they could find this astrologically signified Messiah. So perhaps that's our epiphany task to figure out how this baby's identity could be a gift to our own identity. But how do we know that the Magi, those first gift givers, were seeking a gift themselves? What are the hints that they were actually thinking they found something significant lying in the hay? Theologian Raymond Brown argues that Matthew 2 is like reading the entirety of the gospel story. You could just read Matthew 2 and understand the rest of the book. Here's how. There's two distinct responses to the revelation of God's identity in Jesus. In Matthew 2, Jesus is revealed as the Messiah in a supernatural way, in this case, a star. And there are two reactions. First, there's the religious outsiders, the Magi. Remember, the Magi probably practiced a different religion and read a different set of scriptures. And they traverse, traverse afar, and they exert a lot of energy to meet this Savior, who they greet with open arms and gifts. Now, on the other hand, there's the religious insiders. Herod and the scribes, who feel threatened and try to kill Jesus. They fail, and Jesus comes back from their attempted murder, back from exile in Egypt to live on. Revelation, 
religious outsiders, religious insiders, and the Jesus that keeps on going. Let's go to the rest of the gospel story, shall we? Next week we'll celebrate the baptism of Jesus. Jesus is revealed to us as the Messiah in another supernatural way, in this case the doves coming down and the declaration of this son in whom God is well pleased. And there are two reactions. First, there's the religious outsiders, the tax collectors, and the prostitutes, and the Samaritans that all flock to Jesus, sometimes just to get a touch of his robe. And then there's the religious insiders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the ones who know their scriptures really well, who've got the Bible down pat. They try to kill Jesus. Arguably, they're successful, but Jesus comes back from his exile in the shadow of the valley of death and lives with us today. Now, Matthew's message would have been very clear to the first hearers. God gifted us with this new identity in this child. And we can identify with him like the Magi and the Samaritans and the prostitutes. Or we can reject him like those in power, whether it's the political power of the Herods or the religious power of the scribes and the priests. But if we stick too close to this religious script of the scriptural, this is how things are going to be and this is how it is and nothing should change, we're going to miss out on the inclusive, revolutionary, pluralistic, inbreaking of God's love, gifting us with a new identity in this child. But so often we lose sight of this potentially identity-shaping gift. We use our institutions and our rule books, whether it's the rule of law and government or the Bible and the church, we use them to shield ourselves from the possible changes that would be required from taking on this new identity from the Christ child humbleness and service and justice. So we try to find our own way to get rid of this revelation, to not have to adapt that identity for ourselves. Today I want to come to you as a religious insider about lessons I'm learning about giving that gift of identity to our children and to one another. Presbyterian Church's tendencies, the gifts I've been given, and the identity that I try to claim. And I even have some good news about how giving the gift of identity here in the church can actually work. Now, many of you know that the church has, since the early 60s, seen weekly church attendance decline across the different denominations, somewhere around 17% now, depending on who you read. And there's plenty of hemming and hawing and blame-throwing. But the most astonishing piece to me is not what's happening in the broader culture, but what's happening within the church. A while back, we started accepting that we weren't seeing our kids in church. We sort of rationalized that, you know, once they had a family and kids, they would meander back through and they would figure out what's going on. And for some people, that's true. 
But the statistics are increasingly clear that around 50% of children who are brought up in the church, that's the ones who go to the pageants and go to Sunday school and go to youth group, that 50% of those kids are going to walk out the door of the sanctuary and never come back. 50%. Now, if we believe that the good news is personally and communally life-changing, we can't be okay with that. So how do we stem that loss? How do we learn how to give the gift of identity, identity rooted in the Savior, to our children? Kara Powell is the director of the Fuller Youth Institute and has had interviews with hundreds of students and parents and has worked with sociologists across the country to help identify three major shifts that need to occur. As you're listening, you'll understand that some are happening in our midst and some are some that need more emphasis and some are things we've never tried before. The first shift is from a behavior-based gospel to a grace-based gospel, or what I like to call a gospel-infused identity. Has anyone here ever come home or walked into their bedroom and found their children trying on their clothes? or their shoes, or their hats, or their makeup. That's not unusual behavior. Childhood, the psychologists tell us, is about putting on behaviors like a jacket until you find one that fits. And like at the mall, there are a lot of different providers trying to tell you which jacket you should wear. A lot of different voices and influences in our world. And this isn't a cognitively intentional maneuver that children do. It's just what they do. They're trying on different ways of being in the world and trying to figure out what's comfortable. Now here's the theology about it. When the gospel they hear from the church and from their family is a list of things about what to do, a list of behaviors, they just put on the jacket wander around until they find a new set of behaviors that they like better. Brat girl, star athlete, top student in the class. Whatever feels better, they toss off the Christian jacket and put on a new one. Let the other one hang out in the goodwill pile. So that's if the gospel of Jesus Christ has been described primarily as a list of moralisms. Don't be mean. Don't do drugs. Give some money away when you have extra. Don't party too much. And if you're Presbyterian, don't have too much fun. But if the students that Powell interviewed, and I've seen this in my own experience as well, if those students could claim the gospel not as something that they do, but as a part of who they are, this wasn't a piece of clothing they could take off. This is something that was intertwined into their souls, this understanding of the love shown to them by God in Christ Jesus. So that these students knew that their identity wasn't defined by when they screwed up, when they didn't perform as well as their parents asked, but rather by how much God loves them. It wasn't about whether they got into the right college whether they knew 
they were claimed and owned in life and in death by the love of God. So that's the first shift, from a behavior-based to a grace-based or an identity-based gospel, a knowing about God's love that goes so deep into the core that you can't take off that jacket. So how do we do that? Shift two. From a two-table church, we need to be a one-table church. Plenty of holiday gatherings we've had here, and Thanksgiving, and Christmas, and New Year's. Did anybody in these past few holidays have to set up a kid's table? Anyone ever sat at the kid's table? Maybe you were exiled to the kid's table. That's the idea here. That the church, over the course of the past few decades, often for really good reasons, has cordoned off different ages of the church. Well, we thought they could learn better over here if we just gave them, the youth group, their own space so they could figure things out. But what Powell and others have discovered is it's one of the greatest correlates to whether a student has kept their faith in college is whether they participated in intergenerational worship. There wasn't one separate experience for them that was totally age-specific, but they were a natural part of the worshiping community. And it wasn't just about showing up to worship. We're starting to understand it's about the relationships that are formed with folks that are just a step above us developmentally. Churches that combine the ages and use the gifts of the children, our blessing, and the retired, and the middle-aged, and the college student, these are churches that tend to produce lifelong Christians because of those intergenerational relationships that are formed by frequent, spontaneous interaction. And I've mentioned here before the research on the 5-1 teams, this understanding that students tend to keep their faith. If they can find five people in the church, five faithful practicing Christians, who they could claim as people who are on their team, right? If something were to ever happen to you, would there be someone who you know could step in and, and love on you and encourage you? Are there five people who know significant details about your life? Children don't become Christians because a preacher tells them to act the right way, but because they build relationships with other Christians who show them the right way. And that remind them every Sunday, no matter what happened at school that week, or no matter how poorly they did in that baseball game, that no matter what, they are loved by God. No matter what. And if they see it acted out in the church, it becomes a bedrock of their identity. Start saying, wow, if this church, if this is a place where I can feel that kind of love, I want to know what that kind of love feels like from God. And since the gospel being woven into our identity is this mix of intergenerational relationships, the third shift is probably pretty obvious to you already. A shift from dry cleaning parenting to a partner or parent partnership. Dry cleaning. What do you do with your clothes? You drop them off to the dry cleaner. In an hour and a half, 
You expect to pick up your dirty clothes clean and pressed and ironed. Some have argued that in some places, in some parents, in some parts of the church, we've had the same ideology with our children. We take them dirty to the church, drop them off, and hope an hour and a half later they come out religiously clean. They're done swearing, and they'll do all their homework when we ask them to. As I said, this is not true of all parents or all people. But we do have a bit of that mentality in our culture because we can do that with piano lessons or with sports clinics, right? We do outsource some pieces of development. But the literature is really clear that we can't do that with our spiritual development. The most influential people in a student's life, with no surprise to any of the teachers in this room, are the parents. No one is more influential in a children's spiritual development than their parents. Especially their fathers. Statistically, if I see a father who is involved spiritually in a child's life and is active in that child's life, we're looking at somewhere between two-thirds and three-quarters of their children who will be attending church 20 years later. Quite a bit less if dad isn't involved. But it's still really high if you have any parent involved. Moms and dads pushing, working, trying to give their kids the kind of community that supports them, that lets them know they're loved by God, and that they can see that love shown to them by this family of faith that surrounds them. We learn our religion through the world, and particularly through our parents. How else can you explain why the Cleveland Browns still have a fandom? <laughs> Go Bears. It's because it keeps getting passed down, right? And so they see that religion practiced, and they see how money is spent in that religious landscape, on new jerseys or in tickets. They see how their time is spent driving the hours to the stadium. They see what their words are and what is spoken about this religion and how that affects their lives. Remember, this is not about worship attendance, although it helps because you have a greater chance of forming those relationships when you come. This is about what's going on beyond Sunday morning. And if your kids hear you say that church is important, but there's nothing different beyond Sunday morning, it's not talked about at the dinner table. Jesus isn't integrated into your, our lives in ways that show a very different emphasis than the general public. Our super intellectual, super gifted students are going to see right past the mirage. Powell says that you get what you are, not what you say. Right? We always ask them to do as I say, not as I do. You get what you are. Students are looking for a sense of identity that encompasses their whole lives, not just what they do for an hour on Sunday. And unless the most influential people in their lives can demonstrate that, they're going to reject the fraud and try on a different religion, usually secular athletic religion that has a much broader selection of jerseys for which the tithe is a lot cheaper and offers a greater sense of community that does make you feel loved. 
I told you there is hope, right? I am standing before you because of a church that unintentionally did all of those things. When I showed up on Sunday morning to Westminster Presbyterian Church in Joliet, Illinois, I was loved on from the moment I walked in the door. No matter how poorly I did on my schoolwork, grace was shown to me. No matter how terribly I dressed, much to my mother's chagrin, older adults loved on me. I was invited to take part in worship as a liturgist, as a singer, as an usher, a preacher eventually in high school. I was invited to do committee work, to be a deacon, and then to be on the session. And yes, these things were modeled to me by my pastor, but they were encouraged and shown to me by dozens. I can go back to Joliet, Illinois right now, and there are dozens of people waiting in that church who know significant details about my life, who I know would be on my team in a second if I needed help, and who would let me know when I walked in the door how well I am loved by the God of the universe. I am so excited to be here at Chevy Chase Presbyterian Church because I sniffed out that you have all the raw elements for this kind of faith formation. We've got, we've got, we have got loving, encouraging saints. I've seen you love on my children. I've seen you encourage my wife and me. This is a place where it is happening, so I'm excited to be a part of it. That's my hope for all of our children. That all of our students who are wrestling with the world's jackets, who are seeking desperately for intimacy, that they can find it here. That we can be the primary supporters of parents. It's a healthy church, and I'm glad to be a part of it. And I pray that we can always remember that the God who granted us a new identity and the Christ child is here with us. It reminds us through this manifestation, this epiphany, that whatever gift we bring to God, we have been given the gift of a new self. May we be a church and a people who do that in our own lives. Thanks be to God and amen.